0: Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty, and homeware, myself, Grace Hill. We'll be chatting to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. So on today's episode, we will be unpacking how retailers can optimize their investment in AI. But to begin with, if you want to learn more about AI generally, this is a topic that we have covered on a previous episode. So I'd really recommend listening to our episode that we had with Alejandro Giacometti, a data scientist at Edited. But before we get into the episode, I think it's really exciting to make a very important announcement in Edited's future, which is the acquisition of dynamic action. So with the accelerated shift towards e-commerce, Two leaders in AI-led retail automation, which is edited and dynamic action, have joined forces to centralize business and market data into one place. So together, we'll close the loop between information and action and equip retailers with the insights that they need to make better data-backed decisions. With the first fully integrated retail automation system, Edited and Dynamic Action combine global market data alongside data from the supply chain ecosystem for rapid insights. In a tumultuous climate, this will help empower retailers to move with precision and agility whilst taking the risk out of retailing. So I am thrilled to introduce you to Michael Ross, who is our SVP of retail science here at Edited. So Michael was formerly the co-founder and chief scientist of Dynamic Action, which, as I've mentioned, is a leader in big data analytics and AI for retail, which has just recently been acquired by Edited. He's also a non-exec director at Sainsbury's Bank. M Brown PLC and is a visiting lecturer at London Business School in AI and applied data science. And he was previously the co-founder and CEO of figleaves.com, starting his career at McKinsey consulting in the early days of the internet. Welcome Michael, how are you doing today?
1: I'm very very happy to be here. I'm doing very well.
0: Amazing. And whereabouts are you for our listeners so they...
1: I am currently in sunny Brighton, very Windy, but next to the sea. So again, very pleasant, very pleasant this time of year.
0: How lovely. There's quite a few edited members Uh, based down in Brighton. (laughs) It's a popular destination, but amazing. So obviously, Michael, you have an extensive background across retail and technology. We'd love it for our listeners if you could give them a brief overview of your career so far.
1: Sure. So start quite a long way back. I'm getting old, I, I've got a degree in maths. So I guess I was studying sort of maths and statistics now over 30 years ago. And interestingly, a lot of what we'll get onto, a lot of what is considered sort of AI today was, was simply statistics 30 years ago. So my background, I then did something entrepreneurial. When I graduated, I set up a business publishing maths back in the early 90s. I then joined McKinsey & Company in 1994, and I guess I was in sort of right place at the right time, and I essentially became McKinsey's internet person in London. It was right, right at the beginning, so just when um, Amazon had launched in '94, and people obviously were talking about the internet, and so I became... Involved in all sorts of interesting projects with newspapers, with broadcasters, with retailers trying to work out, you know, what this internet was, what it was going to be good for. And I spent five years at McKinsey and then really got caught up in the sort of first dot-com boom in the late 90s and left McKinsey to eventually co-found a business that became figleaves.com. So I set up figleaves.com, became CEO in 1999. We launched... Pretty much exactly the same time as ASOS, Nukes, and Netaporte. We were all sort of founded in the late 90s. Remember very vividly in 2001, Fig Leaves was about three or four times the size of ASOS. By 2004, I think ASOS was about 10 times the size of Fig Leaves. So, but sort of lived through a very brief period where we were, we were much, much bigger than ASOS. But I was ran around Fig Leaves for seven years and then exited Fig Leaves. In about 2005, 2006, and then co-founded a business called Ecomera, and Ecomera was a part technology platform offering. And we ended up running the e-commerce for the likes of Asda and House of Fraser, and then we were also a data business. And and we recognised that retailers were sort of struggling to make sense of all of the data that their digital businesses were generating. We ended up selling the e-commerce side of the business and sort of spinning off the data business into a business that became dynamic action. And so then I spent subsequent seven years building the dynamic action business. And then we were acquired by Edited earlier in 2021.
0: I mean, what? a broad range of experiences as well. And I feel like the fact that you've not only been a retail CEO, but you've also got that experience in consultancy, but also the background in tech as well, which I feel like makes a pretty interesting skill set and experience to draw upon. And I guess, you know, ultimately retail has undeniably gone through major changes over the past 18 months, which has expedited the future of retail. I guess from your expertise, expert opinion what are the main drivers of the future of retail would you say so
1: look it's a it's a big question and I guess it's trying to you know answering this sort of question it's it's always my mind is like where do you anchor? where do you start I would typically start with technology because it's technology whether we like it or not it's technology that is the sort of catalyst of, of of transformation I think technology is both transforming how customers are behaving so customers are sort of voting with their mice or with their feet. You know, the, the shifting customer behavior again is, as you pointed out, has been massively accelerated and amplified by COVID. It was obviously shifting before then. But equally, technology is changing what happens sort of inside businesses. And I see two types of change. The first one is what I would call digitalization. And I describe digitalization, which is converting processes that were formerly physical processes into digital processes. And again, we're all familiar with that as consumers, but equally inside enterprise, inside businesses, increasingly their worlds are being digitalized. And then there's separately there's digitization, which is um, things that were moving from sort of analog, i.e. You know, on pieces of paper or data that was simply lost, that data is now being collected at the point of consumption. So so you sort of digital exhaust, essentially, as more and more processes are digitalized, you get this wonderful digital exhaust of of data. So you start off with technology, and then that's leading to these sort of two forces of digitalization and Well, So what? What I think that is, so if, if you're a retailer, you wake up one day, And you've got data that you've never had before. You've got sort of tsunami of data coming at you. You've also got levers that you've never had before. Your ability to pull levers, whether it's pricing levers or or personalization levers or managing sort orders or whether it's on digital marketing, you've got these much, much more fine-grained levers than you've had in the past. As retailers been atomized, I mean, that massively complicates what the world for a retailer looks like. So again, let me take one example. One retailer, you know, we're working with, you know, they are moving from saying, you know, we set a single price for a dress and then maybe we change it. We have a couple of markdowns at the end of the season. We are now going to move to personalized promotions buy SKU, buy store, enabling customers to walk into a store, scan products and get a personalized price. So we may be moved from setting, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand prices a few times a season to setting millions of prices, you know, complete explosion of complexity. And we might change that, you know, 10 times a day. So then moving from one or two big decisions a year to the literally millions, millions of decisions a week. So this, I think, is the the world that retailers are facing into. If they apply old retailing logic to this new world, just massively suboptimizing, yeah. leaving money on the table, and when your competitors are being much more agile and nimble, sort of, it's not a winning formula. And so, what does that mean? That means you need to think of. AI and algorithms as your new colleagues. And it's not that they're going to replace humans, but they're going to amplify humans and they are going to take sort of cognitive burden, both in terms of solving the problems and then how executing at scale. So I think, you know, there's a lot of elements to that. But if I say, you know, fundamentally, what does the future of retail look like? I would say it's got sort of three core building blocks The first one is what I would call decision-re-engineering, retailers needing to rethink the fundamentals of how they make decisions, whether that's the frequency with which they make decisions, the granularity, the specificity of how they make decisions, or the logic of how they make decisions, number one. Secondly, management is going to need to change. When you move from making human level number of decisions to millions of decisions the whole question of decision management and like what the role of the humans and the machines are that needs to change and i think and we look forward to a future of these sort of hybrid teams of, of humans and machines and then finally how you evaluate performance everything to do with metrics and understanding how retail is formed is going to change and, and fundamentally you know old retail you could look at aggregated averages, you could look at your store-like the likes, and you could really understand how the business was performing. The nature of retail and the way it was nicely sort of quantized into individual stores made it relatively easy to actually understand performance. The problem is once you get into sort of omni-channel retail, customer-centric retail, and you've got millions of customers and millions of keywords, looking at aggregated averages no longer gives you any idea of what's actually happening. So there needs to be this kind of complete reassessment of how the retailers actually understand and evaluate their performance.
0: I think you've said a number of like super interesting points there. And I'm imagining merchandisers or planners listening to you speak, Michael, and think, oh my goodness, I cannot imagine doing promotions that are personalized and and may impact millions of price changes a day. And I think it goes back to, as you said, like having machines or technology almost on your org chart and kind of playing to the strengths and weaknesses of each, right? Like, as you said, humans are still very important in the role of retail, but it's like, actually, what is the most effective and efficient way of combining the two for ultimately better business performance, right? I I love the concept of kind of like a a retail trading floor and I think... Luckily, having had exposure to some of the most successful retailers in the world that's definitely kind of the type of a model that you can see them starting to adopt and yeah. and how that is breeding success. But I wanted to talk about a recent article that was published in the Harvard Business Review that was co-written by yourself. It was called Why You Aren't Getting More from Your Marketing AI. It would be great if you could kind of unpack maybe for our listeners the main issues that you investigated in the article.
1: Firstly, even in the article, it's marketing in its most, most general sense And certainly all the principles actually really apply to, frankly, a very broad type of decisions, as I'll sort of explain. So I think the first thing to sort of unpack this is is to start with decisions and to say, look, as I said sort of earlier, one of the key fundamentals for retail now is to look at how retailers make their core decisions and how all this new technology allows them to make decisions differently. What sort of decisions are we talking about? Whether that's pricing decisions, first price or markdown price, promotional decisions, digital marketing decisions, allocation decisions, replenishment decisions. These are the sort of core day-to-day trading decisions that retailers are making. And I would say all of those types of decisions share common characteristics. Retailers have choices. They're decisions where, you know, you might have a, choice of one or two things is it sort of yes or no or one of three or four things or it might be you can choose any number you know you can choose any number from one to hundred so the retailer has to sort of make a decision out of a number of choices and there's uncertainty there is uncertainty now there are certain other decisions we could get onto that don't have inherent uncertainty but the sort of decisions that we're most interested in is where there's some underlying whether it's price elasticity you know i want to mark down i want to understand what Happen to a to pricing, whether it's understanding customer intent, for example, or predicting customer churn. These are the sorts of decisions where there's some underlying, you know, the state of the world is not known with certainty. And so when you think about these decisions, there's a, a lot of thinking actually quite old from the sort of 50s and 60s or decision analysis, which is how you analyze these decisions and you break a decision down into Thinking through, well, what are the options? You know, given every decision, what are the options? What's the uncertainty? Given the uncertainty and the possible decisions, well, what, what are the possible outcomes? And then deciding on what will, given a retailer's objective, that will then inform what decision you will make. Now, most retailers, for most decisions, they don't think of the structure like that. You know, it's much more intuitive. But what's going on is, that, that's I would say, is the of scaffolding that sits underneath the decisions is sort of uncertainty and choices and the decision logic is then well how do i make these choices given uncertainty what we saw in this article is essentially the, the question we were kind of grappling with is well businesses are deploying ai and in that context when we're using the term ai we're really talking about the sort of machine learning part of ai and when we talk about machine learning, we're talking about machine learning as a prediction technology. So we're basically saying, look, businesses are using AI to make predictions, And whether that's about customer churn or whether that's about price elasticity or whether that's what next season's color' is going to be, you know, AI is AI. they're using AI to predict things. But one key insight. Is that we say a prediction is not a decision? You know, just because I can predict that a customer has a seventy percent likelihood of churning, or just because I predict that, you know, I can predict the price elasticity of a particular product or category, that doesn't tell you what decision to make. A decision is a combination of some prediction and some human judgment. And so we thought again, one thing that I think people easily confused about is they think that ai is the decision well doesn't the machine just tell me what to do and the answer is no a machine is you know making a prediction and then that's got to be combined with human judgment what is the decision the human is trying to make and what is the human trying to optimize and those are things that actually are not things that machines know about you know they don't understand Whether this week we're trying to drive profit or this week we're trying to get rid of old stock or whether we're just trying to drive revenue. So what we observed is there are three things that typically go wrong. We call them the three A's. We had to come up with three things that began with an A. So we called them the three A's, which we thought of as the sort of typical failures we see. Alignment, asymmetry and aggregation. So alignment is a sort of failure to ask the right question. A good example of this is the world is very keen on building churn models at the moment. Most retailers are saying, you know, we've got to predict churn, we've got to predict churn. And when you drill, and it's not that that's a bad thing to do, but again, predicting churn is not a decision. It's not that you, you suddenly you wake up one morning, you've got a churn prediction, your business is, is going to be no better as a result of that. What you care about is making interventions that will reduce churn. That's the business decision. The business decision is can we make some interventions, whether that's a promotional intervention or a messaging or something, some mechanic that reduces our churn. And so, okay, now we're getting closer to, okay, we we need a business decision that says what we're trying to do is actually increase our customers' profitability by making an intervention and we have a churn prediction that will inform that decision but even that realizes what you see is we ask the wrong question because you think about a good analogy is in voting and we're all familiar with all the craziness around political (laughs) advertising and whatever color you are You know, if you're you're into political advertising, political advertisers aren't interested in predicting whether you're going to vote Labour or Conservative. What they're interested in is, can we persuade you to change your mind? They're interested in swing voters because the people who have made their mind either way, frankly, you're just wasting money. And so similarly back to our churn problem, what you're really interested in is not really predicting who's going to churn, but you want to predict who's influenceable. And they're the people that you actually want to invest money on. And so that, for me, is a really good example of alignment, like, actually, how do you predict the right thing? Asymmetry is another really interesting problem, because in many decisions that I guess as consumers we used to, let's take, you know, a, a prediction that Alexa might make when you ask for a song or image recognition on Google, there's enormous amounts of cleverness and complexity in the voice processing and the natural language processing but at the point that alexa is making a recommendation it's simply picking the song that it thinks has the highest probability of a match and generally the value of being right and the cost of being wrong pretty symmetrical you know what if i ask for a song and it plays the wrong song no one gets hurt it's not the end of the world but there are lots and lots of decisions where actually the value of being right and the cost of being wrong are very unequal. Let me give you a, an example in fraud. You're a retailer and someone places a £1,000 order. You know, If you accept the order and it turns out to be fraudulent, you're going to lose your £1,000 or the cost of the goods. But if you reject the order, you're potentially annoying or losing massively high-value customer. And so making that trade-off and understanding what the right cut-off is, you know, if you have a model that's predicting whether an order is fraudulent, the cut-off is certainly not 50-50. You know, you have to be much more thoughtful about, well, what's the right, you know, what's the value of being right and the cost of being wrong? And then the final thing we see people going wrong is sort of aggregation of people, you know, not recognizing in this very, very atomized world that you can make decisions at a much more granular level. And, and again, I'll, I'll bring this to life with a couple of examples. You know, I see businesses building customer lifetime prediction models at an individual customer level, but still when they come to take action, they take action across seven segments. So they're making these very granular decisions, but based on a single customer lifetime value target or a single cost of sale target. And so generally what we're seeing is just a failure to use the sort of the new mechanics of retail to make much more, whether it's more frequent or more granular decisions.
0: That was really interesting. And I know that obviously you had highlighted at the start, Michael, that obviously this came through kind of a marketing lens, but actually everything you've said pertains to retail too, from from your article. And obviously, as you've already mentioned, kind of one of the key takeaways from your study is that businesses, you know, fail to ask the right question and end up directing AI to solve kind of the wrong problem. And you gave the example of kind of the customers obviously wanting to reduce churn, but actually focusing on those customers that maybe were influenceable in able to retain their business. Why is it that this happens? And and how can retailers ensure that this doesn't happen within their business?
1: I think this stuff is genuinely very hard. I think the technology is complicated. You know, and when I say technology, I mean, the, the language of AI, the art of what's now possible. You know, I've been doing this a long time. The older I get, you know, the less I realize I know. I think it's a I think Satya Nadella expresses this very well at Microsoft and he said, you know, he wanted to turn Microsoft into a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture and ensure people have a growth mindset and recognize the world is just too complex for senior leaders to think they know the answers to everything. And that's a really wonderful aspiration because I think the biggest barrier is for senior leaders who've spent careers in retail yeah. to admit that they just don't know the answers to the to some of these questions. So I think that's fundamental Sort of the concept that comes from that, I would describe as psychological safety. This is again a concept Google is being big champions of, to sort of create an environment that gives people confidence to say, look, we know there are opportunities, we don't know what they are, but we've got to create space to think differently, to ask different questions. People are worried about change. I mean, change change has always been challenging. And so the businesses I think that do really well and the people who do really well are the ones who create an environment of openness to think differently and willingness to say that what just, you know, there's no sacred cows. We've got to be willing to look at how we make decisions, challenge the status quo, challenge silos. One client I was talking to recently, and we were talking about silos, and he, he made this great comment and he said, Michael, all the silos are smart. Every silo is individually really, really smart. But a lot of the really hard stuff is the stuff that crosses silos. Let me bring this to life. You know, merchandisers own inventory and pricing and promotions, and the marketing team own all the digital marketing spend and what goes on Google Shopping. You know, if you if you're optimizing merchandising. Pricing and promotions independently from Google Shopping, you can't possibly get to the right answer. You have to look at this end to end. You have to sort of think through what is the optimal mix? When do we increase the exposure of products on digital marketing? When do we change the price? When do we do both? And, and yet, getting that collaboration and getting merchandisers to be interested in digital marketing and getting digital marketing professionals to be interested in merchandising is not straightforward it ultimately this comes down to people it comes down to people's willingness to think differently and i think that comes down to the sort of leadership of, of these businesses creating the space for their teams to think
0: differently. Totally. I think it's something that I face a huge amount of my team has in terms of kind of battling with that psychological safety and, you know, humans' natural reaction tendency to kind of fear the possibilities of technology. And like, as you said, it really is important to come from leadership and to kind of foster that growth mindset. And I feel like it's, it's so interesting kind of comparing and contrasting different businesses that we've worked with and actually... One of our customers, you know, even at the most senior level, they kind of were very open and admitted that they didn't understand the possibilities or how it was that we collected our data or edited and and what the impact of that could be. And But they were very open to it and they were very interested and excited. And you could tell that that then... Funnelled down to the rest of the team, and ultimately led to much better decision making versus that fear of, of of what could be and actually resisting the change. But obviously, you guys cite a survey by Sloan Management Review and the Boston Consulting Group, where they found fewer than forty percent of customers who have invested in AI had actually seen business gains from it in the previous three years. So, I guess. How can retailers, marketers, data science teams communicate better and take steps to avoid these pitfalls that you, you set out in your paper to ensure that they are getting those returns that they expect from their AI effort? Yeah.
1: I mean, look, I think certainly AI, you know, is this was sort of is was the shiny new thing that everyone had to sort of dumb if you weren't, you had to be picking the box to be doing, doing something yeah. that you could point to and Absolutely. say it was AI. I think the key for me is sort of think big, but start small. You don't start with a big grand vision and you don't start with the data. You start with looking at a decision and decisions that have a big revenue attached to them or a big cost attached to them and a willingness to say, how can we make this decision differently? Not perfectly, but differently and better. And I think that then, then, you know, perfect becomes the enemy. And then how can we use AI and automation to make decisions more efficiently, more frequently, and more surgically at a sort of lower level of granularity, or where can we apply new logic? And there's no right answer. It's not like you should do one before the other. You just need the curiosity and the creativity to look at decisions and then go on a journey to say, right, And I think very similar to people's approach to agile technology, I think this is really about agile business. It's about how do we increase the pace and agility of making these sorts of decisions.
0: So, Michael, according to a study by Juniper Research, global retail spending on AI will reach $7.3 billion annually by 2022. However, Retailers have always been or, or tended or have a reputation to being slower to adopt technologies in comparison to other industries. Why, why do you think that is? And what are some of the kind of common mistakes and misconceptions that you've seen when it comes to retailers' application of AI?
1: It's just funny. I mean, I'm, I'm always a little sceptical hearing these sort of big round numbers of spend. And when people talk about AI... I mean, pretty much every software on the planet today will will claim to do something related to AI, whatever it is they do, because that needs to be fixed. So I start off with a sort of slightly sort of sceptical tone with all of this type of research. I think when we think about AI, it covers such a broad spectrum of applications. So at one extreme, we all experience as consumers, whether it's it's a voice recognition on Alexa or natural language search or chatbots, the sort of interface AI that are increasingly common and obviously increasingly work very, very, very well. So to some extent, these are now available as services. So you know, most retailers, relatively easy to deploy better on-site search, for example, or to start deploying chatbots to take some of the burden off, off customer service. And I wouldn't say these are wildly, you now might consider these just mainstream software. If you're going to a a call center vendor or you're going to any on-site search vendor, it's like, well, bingo, you've just deployed some AI. But it's not as though the retailer or retailers had to sort of do, you know, make any massive change to their business to do that. It's just sort of, that's AI as part of sort of business as usual. I think where it gets more complicated is when you get into sort of more, let's say the more sort of machine learning aspect of AI, which I think of as AI as a prediction technology. And in that regard, you know, retailers are there's lots of predictions that underpin retail. You know, how, how do we set prices, how many units of something should we order, when do we mark down? How much do we mark down? When do we send a promotion to customers? These are decisions that have uncertainty and where a, kind of a machine learning prediction can potentially help retailers make better decisions. And I think the challenge is that when you, you think about, you know, this sort of machine learning and you think about different domains that, that machine learning gets deployed, there's so many elements of it in terms of what competitors are doing, what's going on in the market. They're just sort of unknown and probably unknowable. So the uncertainty in retail is very, very, very different. And therefore, the complexity of applying AI and machine learning to these types of decisions are sort of quite a different type of problem than a lot of the sort of mainstream AI that, that we're all now used to. What does that mean? Look, it means, you know, for most retailers, and, and let's take most successful retailers – they found a very successful formula. And if you look at whether it's the likes of, you know, let's take Zara or HM, let's pick on Zara. There was a period of four or five years where Zara was opening a store every day, you know, open something like 1500 stores in a four year period. It's an incredibly complex execution. But it's a very, very simple idea. You know, we find a store format that works and then we open more stores. And I think that's probably one of the, characteristics of successful retailers up and you know in store based retail the whole challenge was around finding a format that worked and then opening more stores and then being absolutely sort of militaristic about execution and doing the same thing every day in every store what we're now finding with digital retail and digital retail and growth is driven by customer acquisition and retention the, the complexity of, of retail, the growth model, the uncertainty of these decisions means that it's extremely challenging for retailers to sort of adapt to this new world. And I think that the consequence is that understanding how you should actually deploy sort of machine learning in a way that drives business value is just a hard problem and that it is easy to do badly easy to do things that don't add value or destroy value and retailers don't like that you know they're cautious uh, I would say good retailers are often very simplistic in their approach and that's not a negative they like keeping things simple retailers good retailers, always been simple
0: there's this cautiousness amongst the industry, because as you said, there are examples of where it has gone so wrong. For those, you know, maybe people that are listening who or retailers that are new to adopting AI, where would you kind of recommend that they start and why to make sure that they don't have those same pitfalls that other, you know, retailers have have or face the same casualties?
1: Okay, great great question. I mean, for, for me, the mantra is to sort of think big but start small. And where would you start? start with decisions that either are costing you either where you where there's basically big dollar value and that can either be where you're spending a lot of money so where there's a lot of cost or that's touching a lot of revenue number one I think the second one and this is I think probably the hardest step understand how bad things are today so one retailer I was talking to recently and they were thinking about deploying some more sophisticated AI to drive their on-site to improve the, when you search for dresses on their website, the order in which the dresses are sort of returned. And they had a sort of very vague objective. They sort of said, well, you know, we just think we want to improve the customer experience. The problem is, that is if you don't have a clear problem you're trying to solve, it's very hard to understand, one, how you can ask the AI sort of the right questions, but also you know it's hard to recognize success if you're not clear on the problem in the first place. So what we got to is, is actually, and this is again I think sort of culturally hard is to let's well let's go and kind of analyze current performance of this sort of on-site search to work out well how, how well is it performing. So that, that raised the question of well how do we evaluate it? And, and the business, up until this point, well, they said, look, we focus on click-through rate. you know success is are people clicking on the search results, which doesn't sound like a stupid way to evaluate a search engine. But what it turns out is that if you focus just on click-through rate, the AI is going to basically promote all the products that are typically sellers, popular, you're going to sell anyway, that lots of people like clicking on. And what you end up with is a massive rump of products at the end of the season that haven't sold and you need to mark down. And so actually what we analysed is, well, what percentage of the range was actually never getting viewed? But we found that if a business with something like $100 million of inventory, something I like $20 million of inventory was actually not getting viewed at all or was getting you know, less than five view. So suddenly you realise, okay, now we've got, real, we've got a real problem to go after. The issue is that we are overexposing a set of bestsellers that frankly we're going to sell out anyway, and we're underexposing this sort of underclass of products that can get buried. The analogy would be, oh, they're at the back of the store and no one ever sees them. And then, oh, you know, we've got to mark them all down to get rid of them. So if one can frame a problem, and again, an example of this specific retailer, it was a very easy to quantify problem. We could see that there was tens of millions of of inventory. They could see that they're... Markdowns you know, were, were increasing over time the end of season markdowns, and we could see that this problem was worth about you know five or six million dollars a season. So the nice thing about that is is we could then say, okay well that allows us to one recognize success because if we can start to see that number going down, we're happy, but also we could be confident that you know a one two million dollar improvement would be very meaningful in, in the scale of the business and then the problem became. What we then talk about is, well, how do you then translate that business problem um, this sort of over and underexposed products into a data problem? How do you translate that? And that, again, I think is the next really hard challenge. You know, the business people have a real intuitive then sense of the business problem, but they need to translate that into something that the data scientists can go and solve. And. This is a topic, you know, wearing my edited dynamic action hat this is a problem we think about a lot, which is how do you effectively rank bucks to optimize profitability and profitability across the season? So that for me is an example of, of how do you start small? You start with a bite-sized problem. You start with something really specific that, that the business can understand. You quantify it. You can see that, you know, you are wasting money or missing opportunities today. And then you can translate it into a kind of a roadmap where you can fix, you know, start small and just fix incrementally, recognising, you know, that you can see value along the way.
0: I like it. That's fascinating as well, how you gave insight into the fact that actually the original click through challenge and measure of success actually was Wasn't ever going to be a successful measure of success because of the influence that AI was already having on that measure, which is super, super interesting. So, obviously, you've mentioned like your experience at Dynamic Action and Edited, and kind of the problems and the opportunities that we face with our customer base. And obviously, a huge part of our work is helping our customers really understand market opportunities how do you feel from your experience of working in retail and working with technology how readers could leverage AI to expand into maybe other markets or new categories or even completely new verticals
1: so I think most retailers are sort of typically are thinking on on different horizons is that there's a, there's a relatively standard way of thinking about the world in terms of what's sort of horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, you know, horizon one is how do we optimize business as usual? Then horizon two is how, how do we go into adjacencies? Maybe, you know, adding, adding a category, then horizon three, maybe going into something completely sort of new type of business. And I think when you start thinking about new categories and new geographies, that always comes with lots of uncertainty and complexity. So, and wherever I see uncertainty and complexity, you think, okay, well, how can we use data and AI to sort of reduce that? Every time as a business, you have choices to make. You think, well, we should be able to use data and apply AI techniques to reduce risk or quantify the uncertainty that will help us better a decision. So so taking some of the examples, one of the things we do a lot of, let's say, with new categories or or increasing categories is to look at a business and look at it firstly through the lens of customers and saying, okay, we can now understand customer profitability at an individual customer level, and we can start looking at category performance, not just through the P&L lens, through how much profit did this category generate, but what, what was the customer impact? And one of my favorite stories of this was from Fig Leaves. And I was, I was uh, running Fig Leaves and we were a multi brand retailer. We sold 300 brands and one of our brands, we were the exclusive retailers in Europe of a brand called Perla, which for those unfamiliar is a very expensive Italian lingerie brand. Now, what was interesting about La Perla is when you looked, in fact, I remember a conversation with one of our buyers and she came to me and said, Michael, we, we need to delist La Perla. It's a disaster, you know, it's got a very low margin, it's got very, very high returns rate because of the photography standards La Perla set. You know, it costs us a fortune to photograph it, loses us money. We just lost money last season on La Perla. And I said, Well, we need to look at this from a customer perspective. And When we looked at it from a customer perspective, what we could see it was the brand first purchased by our most valuable customers. It was an actually a brilliant, brilliant brand for acquiring. And then also retaining customers, we didn't make money from their purchases of La Perla, but we made a fortune from their purchases of all all sorts of other things. But La Perla was a a brand that that brought them in. And you could see that very, very clearly. They were going to Google. They were searching for La Perla. They were coming to the website. They were buying La Perla. But then they also bought lots of other stuff. So this then... Fig Leaves led us down a really, really interesting route of looking at every brand and category from the perspective, from a customer perspective. Now, Fig Leaves was pre-edited. What we are now able to do is having sort of looked at a kind of retailer's business in this sort of brand perspective, we can then say, well, let's now look, go and look at the positioning. If we can see brands or categories that are, let's call them, must-win because they are super, super important from a customer perspective, well, what's the competitor positioning? Where is it that we are, you know, market leader or where is it that we can see a new competitor that is now expanding their range in this brand or expanding their range in this category? And therefore one can take, you know, make make some sort of event either try and get exclusivity or expand the range or, or improve availability or whatever it is. So I think the opportunity here is around bringing, you know, the data together. From customer data, from market data to help retailers make again give them confidence to make much sort of faster and better decisions around expansion and, and where you know where to play and how to play.
0: I love that lapella example because I think that's an obvious example where if you hadn't have analyzed the data from through the customer's lens as a commercial minded retail professional, you may have decided actually that you were going to exit that brand and it sure. was loss making. And that actually, ultimately, as you could tell from looking into the data, that there was ultimately much greater gains on a bigger scale of having that brand within your kind of portfolio and, and, and house. So, yeah, no, that, that's really <laughs> interesting. I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of other uh, examples of where, you know, different brands offered a different element of business payback at the end of the day?
1: No, th- without question. So, so some other great examples, we did some work with a, a beauty retailer. And I remember, again, this this very, very clearly. We, we looked at sort of they, they were selling, you know, brands and we looked at sort of analysis of brands. Not only were we looking at the sort of extent to which they acquired or retained customers. We also looked at brand addictiveness, which was what was customers propensity to buy yeah a, a brands or products multiple times again think about a beauty product if we sold a thousand units of something is it that a thousand people have bought one, one bought it once which is not great or is yeah. it that you know 100 people have bought it once 50 people have bought it twice but actually 10 people have bought it you know 10 times and you you recognize that it's a much better sign if people have a propensity to repeat And what we found and was fascinating was we found some quite niche brands that their highest value customers were addicted to. So these were brands that weren't even, you know, never really came up in their bestseller list. But you could see they were bringing back. Or the hypothesis was they were they were bringing back customers who overall were worth tens of thousands of pounds to them. What was interesting in that case? You're rarely saying something to retailers that they're saying. I would never have thought of that in a million years. What you're often saying is, but I had a hunch, but I didn't actually realize how valuable that was. And it was my hunch. And now I can quantify it. I can get the whole executive team behind it. So I think this idea of sort of quantified gut instinct and, and allows the intuition of retailers to scale, not been reliant on you know, unique individuals, is a really nice, for me, it's one of the really important themes that. I don't see a world in, in, in retail where machines take over. We see humans yeah. and machines, you know, working as a team. And actually, you know, you need to think about machines as, as new team members, not as people who are going to threaten
0: Totally. It's like what you said earlier about like, it's like amplifying the efforts and the opportunities, right, that you wouldn't ever be able to do. I know like within the dynamic action platform, you have the opportunity to use your affinities tool and like talking about brand addictiveness, you know, what else is it that they're buying or what products are they buying together and then being able to kind of maximize and build upon that, which... With gut instinct, you may know, but now you have the hard facts to be able to then channel your investment and your resource into that and the payback that you'll get from time, but also at the bottom line will hopefully uh, prove the huge gains and the value of, of. implementing technology like this. So obviously with your experiences with both dynamic action and edited, do you have any stories or tangible examples of where kind of a retailer has successfully applied AI to drive sales and and growth?
1: So look, I think every retailer's starting point is different. And I'm, you know, one's always cautious of making generalizations. I think one thing I would need to pick on is is revenue growth. I think one of the biggest opportunities we see is to focus more on profit than revenue. It's always a sort of famous quote in in retail that revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is reality. I love that. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's really true. And it's so easy to drive revenue and not drive profit. I mean, interestingly, in physical retail, and I think this is where a lot of these sort of ideas come from, physical retail is generally a fixed-cost business. You know, you have rents, you've got rate, you've got electricity, you've got your, your staff costs. But thereafter, your trading costs are, you know, you, it's very, you get the right structure, right? It's very hard not to make money historically. I think what you find in the digital world Increasingly, is there are lots and lots of variable costs. There's there's all the variable marketing costs, where it's order or click. There's the picking and packing costs. There's the dispatch costs. There's a the return costs. What you see in the digital world is it's very very easy to drive revenue and not drive profit. And the reason I say this is because when I think about the clients I'm working with and have worked with over the years, the answer is often not about increasing revenue. Let me give some examples. Eventually, it was a few years ago, and this one customer had bought 11,000 copies of Call of Duty. And this was a business that it was a multi channel retailer and it was selling PS4 games and sort of PlayStation games. And as a loss leader, which was very, very common, probably still is common, but when the new game launched, they were being sold in stores as a way to bring customers into the store. And in store, I think they had limited customers to you know, make, maybe buying five copies in, in one order. Online, they had put a similar limit that you could only buy five in an order. They had, it hadn't limited the number of orders that a customer could make. So this customer had made 2,000 orders for five PS4 games at a time that no doubt he was then selling on market stalls or internationally. So this was a brilliant example where. The, the guy running the category was getting patted on the back because he'd driven millions of pounds of revenue. But in fact, I mean, it was a PS4 charity. I mean, was a, they were just giving, giving stuff away. And so I think that's another example where we could identify a kind of, a, you know, both quantify losses and also then have a very direct action attached to it. Another great example on a similar theme was a US fashion retailer and we found a set of customers who returned 100% of everything they ever bought. We called them free rental customers because they, you know, they would typically buying on a Wednesday or Thursday and then sending back after the weekend. And, <laughs> they, you know, one customer in particular, I think, had spent $100,000. was a gold customer because, of course, the gold, silver, and bronze was based on their revenue, not their profitability. So they were yes. rewarding that customer with, with lots of free beers and, additional it promotions, happened. and the customer was sending back everything they were buying. So that's, for me, another another really, really good example. And then I mentioned earlier the idea of these sort of sort orders and sort of under and over exposure. That is, for me, again, a recent example where most retailers are, are sending a, a product feed to Google Shopping. Google Shopping, for a typical retailer, is an increasingly large percentage of their paid marketing spend is on Google Shopping. And again, it's, it, it's difficult for retailers to send their entire product feed to Google because that is technically much the easiest thing to do. However, what we could see is that there was a huge amount of spend on products that were either completely sold out, that were out to sell out, that were very, very fragmented and therefore weren't converting or never existed and had just ended up in the product feed through technical errors an overall level the google shopping spend looked pretty efficient so if you looked at an aggregate level and you said well you know we spent x million on google shopping and we generated 5x you know marketing team was saying that oh, great results you know we hit our numbers actually when you when you looked at a kind of more atomic level and you said well hold on a second yes overall it's been efficient but we could have saved millions of pounds and achieved the same top line revenue and and actually start aligning Google Shopping to our inventory position and saying, well, how how can we actually use Google to help drive sell-through versus just simply exposing products that are going to sell out anyway? That led to a a much more thoughtful and constructive conversation. What we we ended up with was what I would describe as profit-optimized product feeds, where you were sending every hour to Google a product feed that was aligned to driving total business profit, not purely on a sort of a siloed marketing outcome.
0: I think that's a great example of demonstrating how, like, as you said, in silo, yeah. these metrics can look great and can look fantastic and you're achieving your objectives. But actually when you combine that with other metrics and actually look at the, the full picture, yeah. it's not actually probably telling you what you thought it was saying. And
1: no, and look, I think I think this is a great you know, spend the whole podcast just talking about this because I think when you you know most retailers have been set up functionally, you know, and there's a there's a buying function, a merch function, supply chain, marketing, yeah. digital. And up until a point, you know, what happens in these businesses is you take high level objectives and you cascade them down into sort of functional objectives and then the functional leads do the best job they can to say, okay, well then what are the right metrics? to optimise my bit of the jigsaw puzzle. And then I think two, two or three things change. The first one is, you know, the world changes. You know, 10 years ago, you know, Google Shopping, or 15 years ago, Google Shopping didn't exist. You know, marketing could optimise pretty independently from merchandising. But as the sort of the landscape changes, you know, those, you know, optimization that made sense in the past stops making sense, number one. Number two is, you know, we've got data we've never had before. You know, in the past, this data was not captured or expensive to capture. We've now able to sort of what I would call sort of instrument the business in a way that simply wasn't possible in the past. And I think, thirdly, the business challenges are very different. You know, then in the past, retail was very profitable. They were growing. They were expanding. You know what? Optimizing to the last, you know, pound of digital marketing spend. It just was not, it was not a priority. But as the world changes, as we get more data as the competitive pressures sort of increase. And I think that data transparency is really the first step to that. Is, is at least getting each silo to understand the consequences on the other yeah. piece of the business is a really good starting point. And you know, I, I think a lot about what I would call guardrail metrics, that then you know the digital marketing colleagues they can be optimizing, but they need guardrails that help them not create problems or, or, or ensure they're solving the right problem downstream for merchandising and vice versa. So I think there is, you know, really key, really, really interesting point in retail where I think that the next generation of metrics and management and sort of how you understand performance and continually optimize these sort of complex end-to-end processes, is a really interesting and difficult management challenge.
0: Yeah, we were having a conversation earlier today, actually, and talking about kind of just how actually the data transparency you're talking about is just such a powerful communication tool cross-functionally within businesses as well and connecting them together to ensure that you ultimately are making the right decisions for the business at a total level. I
1: think creating that sort of culture of data transparency is incredibly powerful if one can get it right.
0: Yeah. And I think as well, it's interesting to reflect on that, not just internally within an organization, but an organization with its partners as well. And, you know, we know that a lot of our customers will use our market intelligence to actually kind of have more effective conversations and collaborate with whether that's their wholesale partners or the brands that they work with. You know, we've had examples of customers or suppliers have been asked to offer a cost price reduction because of products maybe not performed on their expectations. And they're actually able to use the market intelligence data to actually say, Challenge them on that and say, actually, no, this is one of your top performing products. And, yeah. you know, ultimately that saved them a huge amount of money because they've been able to use that data to support their business case. And, you know, maybe offer al- alternative lines or other areas in which that they can. Um, no, and
1: great, I think it's a very good point because I think what you see is historically, as I said, you know, many businesses sort of see this sort of information is power and hold information very, very tightly. I think yeah. what you can see is that, you know, it's clear that there is some data that retailers are sitting on that is obviously sensitive and proprietary and is massively, gives them a huge competitive advantage. But equally, there's a lot of data, particularly, say, supply chain data, where actually you get massive efficiencies through collaboration through through the supply chain. And so I think that is a really interesting Again, strategic challenge for, for retail leaders who might historically have said, no, we don't share any data with any partners ever. That's our sort of secret sauce to actually say, look, we can be a bit cleverer about this. There's data that is clearly stuff that we need to keep very close to our best, but there's equally data where there's more value in sharing it than there is in, in, in holding it ourselves. I think it's really interesting.
0: Totally. Well, Michael, this has been such a fascinating conversation, and thank you so much for for joining. And I think one thing we always ask any of our guests is, what is the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? What would you like? Um, to well, the
1: this? one thing I'd love them to take away—it's a great question. I'm not even sure I talked about it, but I think the one thing I would like them to take away is the distrust of averages. I think one of the things. I see in this sort of the world that we're in now, yeah, this sort of atomized digital world, whether you're talking about customers, whether you're talking about products, whether you're talking about digital marketing on Google, um, averages are the enemy. And so I, I think that the opportunities to sort of think differently all stem from beginning to sort of de-average your business and start to look at at the world, I, I, my analogy is it's like you want to look at the world through a microscope, and everyone has been looking at the sort of retail world, which to be honest was the right way. Historically, retail with broad strokes, you looked at stores, you looked at categories, but you now need to look at your business as if it was under a microscope because the opportunities in this sort of digital world are at that much more level.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael. That was uh, that was fantastic. Thank you for, for joining me. As a listener of ours, we are here to support you throughout 2021. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all of our listeners, ensure you're subscribed to our Insider Briefing. You can sign up at edited.com where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Michael, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with future episodes. And we would love it if you could tell your friends or family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in contact at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Thanks. Bye.